It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Some of the greatest threats to our Constitution are right here in America. That has to be a red line. We can't have tens of billions of dollars every election cycle floating around and not know where it came from. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. This story is as old as time, right? It's about corporate malfeasance. It's a surprise when someone leaves a major party because we know that typically independent candidates have a hard time winning. My job is to convince my colleagues that crypto is a garden of snakes. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Extreme weather, spiking COVID cases, geopolitical tensions, and a crypto meltdown. These are just a few of the big stories that we covered in 2022. And we're going to dive deep into these issues that you need to know before we head into 2023 on today's show. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. I'm Madison Mills in today for Joe Matthew. We got a great show ahead for you with a focus on the Supreme Court, the latest news on Title 42, and the big SCOTUS moves you need to remember as we head into to 2023. Let's dive into our focus for the day here, immigration. For almost three years, the federal government has turned away migrants seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border under a public health order called Title 42. The Supreme Court announced Tuesday that the Trump-era COVID-19 border restrictions will remain in effect during legal challenges. That's a victory for a lot of Republican challengers. Speaking with ABC News Phoenix affiliate KTAR on Wednesday, Sheriff Mark Daniels from Arizona responded to the decision. It gives communities both on the border and also in our country a sigh of relief, but also it gives some time and an opportunity for the federal government to engage us and put an operational plan together. As communities breathe that sigh of relief, does the White House? Here's Bloomberg political contributor Jeannie Shanzano on that. I saw this as a gift from the Supreme Court and the conservatives on the court to Joe Biden and the Biden administration, because, of course, had they agreed to lift Title 42, they were facing an even larger influx of migrants on the border. And as we've heard from El Paso and all the border states, they are not prepared to handle that. A gift of some sort for the Biden administration. Let's get more on that from Bloomberg's White House correspondent, Jordan Fabian. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on this week that a lot of your colleagues are off. We really appreciate it. Give me the context here. What's the status of immigration at the border right now? Well, it's it's been uh, for the last really two or three years, uh, very high numbers of 
migrants trying to cross the, the southwest border. And it's only increasing. Uh, the last two months, uh, border agents have had over 200,000 encounters with migrants. And so uh, I, I heard that what the, your colleague uh, said, or our colleague said earlier, this is a gift. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that Title 42 has done little to deter the number of crossings. And in fact, uh, some people believe that it's only incentivizing more crossings. So it's a very complicated situation happening right now. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding uh, border and immigration policy due to the Supreme Court decision. Talk to me about the latter half of what you just said, the idea that this could have uh, been encouraging more migrants to come to the border. Does this decision from the Supreme Court change that? So what Title 42 does is allow authorities to quickly expel uh, probably a little bit around half of the migrants who show up at the border. Um, but, but under that program, uh, there's no real legal consequences for those people who get turned away. So they can just try and cross again and again and again and again. And what authorities have found is that you know, they, they're, they're counting people who've crossed five, six, seven, eight times. And, and that's put strain on border agents because they have to you know, try and, and round all those people up again and again. And so uh, with this, this policy still in place, they're going to still be dealing with that problem. Uh, and, and there's not going to be real certainty about that for another few months as, a, as this case works its way through the court system. Let's talk about the president who you spend a lot of your time covering for us. Where did the Biden administration's immigration policy stand heading into this Supreme Court decision? The Biden administration wanted uh, Title 42 gone. And, uh, you know, the, your, the contributor made a good point, which is that this uh, this decision kind of saved them the headache of dealing with a major new spike of migrants now. But it's sort of like, do you rip the Band-Aid off or do you rip the band or do you keep it on and let the infection sort of fester? Because this policy, it's a public health policy that was tied to the pandemic. So it's eventually going to go away. And, and, and whether it's now or a few months from now, uh, they're going to have to deal with this. And you know, the, the Biden administration has uh, not succeeded in passing new immigration laws. Uh, they face a lot of opposition from Republicans. And at the same time, Congress has not provided them with all the money they wanted to deal with the influx of the border. So uh, they, they've really faced a lot of obstacles in trying to get their agenda on immigration passed. Those obstacles are exactly what we're going to talk to our panel about here in a little bit. But just sticking with President Biden, how does the current status of immigration policy coming from the White House square with Biden's campaign promises, with his promises on day one in office? So he promised to introduce a, an immigration reform bill, a comprehensive immigration reform bill on, on day one. And he did that, but it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, it was going to provide a uh, path to citizenship for the around 11 million illegal immigrants living in the United States in exchange for uh, some enhanced uh, border protection policies. But but that, that sort of policy has been introduced time and again over the past decade, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. And even a smaller... Uh, piece of legislation that was talked about in the Congress that would have addressed the status of uh, DREAMers, the young undocumented immigrants living in the United States, didn't go anywhere. And the, the prospects look even dimmer next year because Congress is going to be divided uh, with the Republican House and the Democratic Senate. And there's just a lot of divisions, a lot of opposition from Republicans 
to a deal like that. And so it's really hard to see the space for uh, getting a deal done, even though the situation at the border is becoming more and more dire. You've got division not only in Congress, but also between state and federal governments. The justice is saying they'll hear arguments in late February or early March on states' bids to kind of intervene in defense of this policy. And can you just explain to me, Jordan, where do the states stand on this issue? So it's a real legal mess, Madison, but yeah. uh, basically these states are, are they're not actually party to the underlying lawsuit, but there are 19 Republican states who say that the ti- repealing Title 42 would cause a disaster at the border. And what they're petitioning to do is intervene in this lawsuit, which was brought by civil rights advocates who want Title 42 gone. And so the, the Supreme Court at first has to decide whether those states can intervene. And if they, if and when they decide that, then they would have to rule on the underlying lawsuit. So uh, the bottom line is that this could take months longer to play out, and the uncertainty surrounding Title 42 could, could continue well into next year. All right, Jordan, I want to throw a wild card at you here. Uh, I know that you are not uh, on vacation with the White House family here, but let's pretend that you were and you got to ask President Biden a question about this issue. What is your biggest question for the Biden administration, for the White House right now, specifically on immigration policy? It's not a very creative question, Madison, but but my basic question is, you know, what what are you going to do about this in a big way? Because, yeah. you know, they've, they've proposed some things around the edges, like more money for the border. But really, this is a systemic problem and it, and it requires a big solution. And, uh, you know, it might require executive action uh, in the absence of congressional action. So, uh, you know, my question would be, what are you going to do about it? And are you, go- are you going to try, try and take matters into your own hands as you know, Barack Obama did, as Donald Trump did? on the issue of immigration and and try and and do something to address the situation. Because uh, right now, this is one area where they just don't seem to have a handle on the problem. Yeah, and it is a big problem and it's not going away. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us to give us the really important context on that. Really appreciate your reporting on Title 42. We're going to go now to Leon Fresco. He is a partner at Holland and Knight, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, thank you so much for being here to give us your expertise on this. Talk to me about your reaction to the SCOTUS news here. What would you say is the single biggest concern that you have about the impact of this decision from the Supreme Court? Well, the interesting thing is that what's being reported isn't exactly in line with the actual facts of what's going on, meaning that there are so many levels and layers to these cases that it's really hard to sort of get a straight arrow reporting of what is happening. And here's what I mean. So, for instance, in the Louisiana case, which is the case that's actually keeping now Title 42 in effect until at least now June of 2023, that's a case that the Biden administration could have chosen to speed up in the appellate process and ask for expedited consideration, but they didn't. And so that's why we don't have an answer on the fate of Title 42 faster. Secondly, in the D.C. case, which is the case that was actually dealt with yesterday by the Supreme Court about this issue of whether the states could intervene or not, and whether that decision from the D.C. district would be stayed. The only reason there's a decision to be stayed now is because the 
Department of Justice took an appeal to the Court of Appeals of the D.C. Circuit. Had they not taken an appeal, there would have been nothing for the states to intervene to, and there wouldn't have been, yet again, a stay. And so what's fascinating about this is the Biden administration could say, well, we don't want Title 42 around, but that's not actually consistent with two different litigation decisions that have been made in these cases. So the the fair point is to say they may have a, a lukewarm uh, desire to have Title 42 around, but there are certainly the actions that have taken place are actions where it doesn't seem like there's actually a great desire to end Title 42 with regard to the Biden administration. Have we seen comprehensive immigration plans from the right? Well, they are not in the mood to do anything at the moment that would have sort of the pillars of immigration reform, which would be there's sort of three or four Why is that? that? Why are they not in the mood for that? Well, I think they view the current situation on the border as one where to the extent that now you're seeing more and more programming in this regard, even not on just Fox News or Newsmax, but you're seeing it on MSNBC and CNN, that that's an advantageous situation to show that there's not an ability to end those scenes on the southern border. And so why basically give a hand up to a person who's not able to handle this situation? But at the end of the day, I do think that there will be a confluence of factors that will hopefully lead to an immigration reform effort. And the question is when and how that will happen. When and how that will happen, because as as we've been mentioning, I mean, we're focusing on the border, but migrants seeking asylum here, I, this is a global issue, as you know firsthand, Leon. Absolutely. This is this is something that's that's happening, and migrants seeking asylum here from countries around the globe. Do you get a sense that Washington is missing a story here on other nations with migrants seeking asylum? Well, this is an interesting question because there's sort of two buckets of what's going on on the southern border. There's the pure political turmoil bucket, and that's what you're seeing from the Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba group that you're seeing in the southern border. And then there's the economic turmoil bucket, which is what you see from the traditional Central American-Mexican migration on the southern border. And then the Haiti situation is a bit of a hybrid of both. And that group is ebbing and flowing. So at at one time you have the Central American economic migration, and another time now you're seeing this political migration of Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, but it's always something. And so the question is, there's not, this is why I'm always skeptical of these sort of root cause approaches, because there's always going to be different nations that will pop up that will lead to an asylum surge on the southern border. So anything you do in one isn't going to fix something that you do in another. What really is necessary is a system for people to report somewhere in an orderly process that isn't one to 200 feet inside of the U.S. southern border. That's what we have to get to a close of. So whether that's going to be at the U.S. port of entries or whether that's going to be at U.S. consulates in Mexico or whether that's going to be in new pop-up locations on the Mexican side of the southern border, but, right. but, but basically what there has to be is a manageable stream of appointments whereby people can present themselves, get fingerprinted, 
have a vetting of whether they actually have a credible fear of persecution in their home country. It, it's and that infrastructure, sure. right, Leon? I mean, I'm so sorry oh, to jump sorry. in here, but it's it's you talk yeah, a lot problem. about the infrastructure changes that need to be put in place to kind of fix the system in your view. I know you also spend a lot of time speaking with individuals who are going through this. Can you talk to me about what we might be missing in the headlines about what those asylum seekers are experiencing when, like Jordan mentioned earlier, they're coming to the border multiple times again and again trying to get entry into this country well right it's a terrible experience for them they're putting all their possessions their valuables their their life practically on the line and they would gladly follow an orderly process if one is available but they go to the ports of entry or they hear from people who are trying to wait at the port of entry and they're told there's no way to do that or you have to go 100 miles to maybe this port, and then they go and they do that, and then 100 miles later they're told to go to another port. And all of that leads people to just say, well, you know what, if that's what's going to happen, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands and cross the border. And that's what you don't want. You don't want a policy yeah. that encourages that. And we, we've actually seen what's fascinating is we now have the evidence, and the evidence right. is the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian program very yep. clearly showed you another big story had- leon sorry to cut you off here but we got to run another big story we covered yesterday what's going on in ukraine we're going to cover all this and more coming up here this is bloomberg from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew. We're digging into immigration on today's show, a big issue not going away anytime soon. Joining me to discuss is our panel today. We've got Boyd Matheson, host of KSL Radio's Inside Source, Republican strategist and former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. We've also got Max Burns, Democratic strategist and founder of Third Degree Strategies. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm excited that we've got you all on our panel because the two of you, I feel, could not be further politically, but we're going to try to get some consensus here and we're going to have a great conversation. Max, I want to begin with you. We've been dancing around this discussion today about whether or not the White House reads this as a gift. What's your take? Does the Biden administration get let off the hook with this? Well, I think it does take some of the pressure off the White House because now they can wait until effectively June for this decision. And it also allows them to message a bit more aggressively this idea that Republicans have said, you know, that they they believe no government program or every government program essentially becomes permanent and are now lobbying the Supreme Court to extend what is a public health policy into becoming sort of an immigration policy, which is, I think, an argument that people will be receptive to. But to your point, yes, it definitely takes this uh, a little bit off of Joe Biden's plate and hands it back to the Supreme Court for a few months. 
Well, Boyd, I want to get your take on this, too, because the White House yesterday, White House press secretary said the order gives Republicans in Congress plenty of time, quote, to move past political finger pointing and join their Democratic colleagues in solving the challenge at our border. Boyd, what do you make of that? I'm actually going to agree with her (laughs) because I I will be an equal opportunity offender on this. And this this is such a great example of what happens when Congress doesn't do its job and it doesn't matter who's in power and what happens when the executive branch or presidents act by executive order. And regardless of who's in the White House, what gets done by executive order gets undone by executive order or what gets done by executive order ends up in the courts. Uh, and works its way through. And we've seen that with immigration. We've seen that with student loan forgiveness. And to me, that's the real issue of all of this, is Congress can totally do this. I still firmly, passionately believe that we could solve 94% of the immigration issue in a single afternoon on the floor of the House and the Senate, because everybody agrees. Everybody knows we need to have a secure border. Everybody knows we need to fix this outdated system that makes it impossible to work its way through. Everyone knows we need to know who comes in and who leaves the country. I mean, if if Disneyland can tell me where my kids are in the park at any point for three days, surely the greatest country on earth can figure out who comes in and who goes out. And so to me, this is not about a policy issue. This is about political will. Mm. Uh, And I'll be equal opportunity offender today, uh, both sides. Uh, could really come to the table. And I actually hope I actually hope that this little break in this particular issue with Title 42 actually creates space to have a different kind of conversation. And I actually think it could be that gift to President Biden because he could lead this and not just call out the Republicans, but call out his friends and see if we can't get to something that would actually solve the policy issue, sure. not just the political issue for both sides. But but I got to stick with you on the political issue for one second here, because you mentioned political will. I have to wonder, what is the political will for Republicans in Congress to attack this as we enter a divided session uh, and as we head into the 2024 election? Is this potentially a convenient political football for the GOP? Yeah, it's always a convenient political issue. Uh, And this time it's for the Republicans and next time it'll be for the Democrats. And both sides raise millions and millions of dollars off of it and use it as a political wedge issue uh, when it's convenient for them. And so the the real test and where we really have to have somebody step up with real leadership to say, let's not treat this as a political issue. Let's create this as a policy issue. And let's start with what we agree on. Uh, And we don't need a a 4,000 page bill that nobody's read. Let's just start picking it off because there is massive agreement on well, so much of, of it. Let's let's dig into that policy that you're mentioning, because if there is that massive agreement that you mentioned, I wonder what the specifics of that policy and that consensus could look like. Max, we heard Neil Gorsuch, you know, really passing the buck to Congress here. What does the consensus look like? Yeah, I think you, you make that point. Neil Gorsuch was very unconvinced by by taking this case in the first place and allowing this to continue on. As he mentioned, uh, this is not an immigration policy. This is a COVID policy. And there is a sense here, I think, with Republicans, especially in the House, who are about to go through this bruising decision of, of who their speaker will be, are going to need to come in and do something that shows legitimacy, that they can take governing seriously. And there's a real opportunity here, I think, to get something that is centrist on immigration, I think that most Democrats, even though they may not say so out loud, are more than willing to negotiate on something that gets us to a yes on immigration that that may not include an explicit pathway to citizenship, 
but provides maybe protection for dreamers that's a little bit stronger than has been the case so far. But this idea that, that both sides are so far apart, I think, is largely a product of, of media more than it is mm. the actual policymakers I speak to. And there is just they're waiting for this moment to find an opportunity to do this. And as long as they keep kicking it to the courts and, and avoiding this issue, I mean, we're not going to get there. Okay, so let's let's play a little game here and pretend uh, that you are, you know, on the floor in Congress. You're able to make one suggestion on immigration. Max, what do you say? What is the thing that you think brings the two sides of the aisle together on this issue? I think we can agree on, on streamlining the process for legal immigration, for especially for skilled immigration, we've seen has been a major sticking point that both parties are unhappy with. And, and dreamers, especially, I think now has become a very politically doable thing for both sides. I don't think there's anyone who thinks there is political points to be had in, in trashing these children who have, have become, in some cases, exceptional young Americans. And there's a lot of political value there in recognizing them and doing something to help out. Boyd, I want to ask you the same question. What do you say on the floor to kind of uh, find common ground, but also more, more specifically to, you know, really make some policy moves here? Yeah, so I, I think it be, really begins with this idea that we need to abandon the fake fight and the false choice, that we can have rule of law and compassion, that those are compatible principles. And I think we could even do that in the context uh, of Title 42. I mean, clearly... We live in a country where the lady in the harbor says, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, and let's let them breathe free. And we understand that. No one's more compassionate than the people of this country. Uh, And so let's be compassionate in a way that creates certainty. When we're doing things by executive order, we create uncertainty. I agree with Max. Uh, We need to make sure for the dreamers, rather than doing this football back and forth and executive orders that create more uncertainty in their lives. Let's do it and let's do it uh, and make, make it certain. So H-1B visas, the dreamers we need to deal with for sure. Title 42, I think we can do it. And, and honest, true asylum seekers who are in duress, who are under threat of, of their own lives. Those are all very simple things and very easy places to start uh, because, again, everybody agrees. But we have to keep proving out that this fake fight, false choice world that we're living in isn't real. Uh, and we can prove it in immigration that rule of law and compassion are compatible right down to the policy. I really appreciate the optimism from both of you that Congress is going to be able to get a lot done on this issue, particularly as we head into a divided Congress. You know, I, I can't help but think about history here. Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all somewhat stepping back on immigration as a core issue once they're entering office after not making that headway in Congress. Uh, our, our White House correspondent earlier in the show said that his big question to Biden, if he could ask him anything right now, would be, do you need to take matters into your own hands here as we enter this divided Congress? Uh, I, I wonder if, Max, you can touch on that for me. I mean, what do you make of that argument that Biden is, is the only one who can move the needle here? I think he certainly has credibility here. I mean, he's shown through legislation just in the last six months in the Senate that he's been able to move things through uh, a Congress that many people thought would be DOA for him. But this is essentially in Congress's hands, and I think there is an appetite. I mean, we've almost had these immigration deals multiple times before, and it has always been uh, this very small core of fundamentalists 
who has managed to derail that. And I think that there is more knowledge of that now. And I think that both sides have this ingrained incentive here to show the American people that they are the party that can govern. You know, this is one of the benefits of being so close in the House Mm. is that you have great incentive for both parties to be as mature as they can be and show the American people they should get the majority in two years. Max and Boyd, really appreciate your insights on this. We're going to come back to you later on in our show. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew. We got to talk about the weather because it's impacting travel and it's impacting our energy system and it just keeps coming. First, we had record low temperatures in the Northeast causing power outages across the U.S., upwards of 30 deaths in Buffalo, New York. That's in the backdrop of the travel chaos that is plaguing those specifically who are flying on Southwest Airlines, canceling 60% of Tuesday, Wednesday's flights already and 60% more heading into tomorrow. Here's the CEO. I want everyone who is dealing with the problems we've been facing, whether you haven't been able to get to where you need to go, or you're one of our heroic employees caught up in a massive effort to stabilize the airline, uh, to know is that we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And please also hear that I'm truly sorry. He's truly sorry. There are hopes that Southwest can ease on these issues as the weather warms up in the coming days and next week. That was CEO Bob Jordan on from Southwest Airlines on that. But not so fast because we've got an atmospheric river coming into the West Coast and Pacific Northwest. I know you're thinking, what is that? It's a meteorologist's terminology there. It's an extreme weather event hitting the Pacific Northwest and West Coast again, causing rain, winds, and even snow. Power lines are already down in the Bay Area. So the question is, what impact could that have on our already cracking electrical grids across the country? Joining me to discuss is Mark Chediak and Noreen Malik, two of our Bloomberg News reporters. Mark, thanks for being here. Let me start with you on the context here. I remember when this happened in Texas in 2021, the idea was that that was a one-off because Texas is in a warmer climate. They weren't prepared to deal with the cold weathers. But now we're seeing the same issues emerge in the Northeast which should potentially be more prepared to deal with the cold. Is is this a bigger issue here with the U.S. energy system we're seeing? Yes. I mean, to step back a little bit, um, I think what we saw here was, uh, compared to Texas, a much uh, bigger and widespread uh, polar blast, which impacted a lot uh, larger section of the country and affected uh, uh, you know, multiple power grids at the same time, which caused a lot of problems in terms of coordinating and, and supplying energy um, across state lines. Um, actually, where we saw um, the rotating blackouts, uh, it did happen to be in sort of little warmer weather states in, in North Carolina, Tennessee, and South Carolina. They simply uh, didn't have enough power supply um, for homes and businesses uh, as that uh, really record cold front moved through. In the Northeast, um, you know, they they begged uh, consumers to uh, cut back their energy use and they warned of of about possible blackouts, but they actually did not have to pull the plug, Um, but but they got very close. Right. And they also had to ask a lot of customers to pull back on energy usage, uh, which is typically something that happens in the summer and less in the winter. Noreen, I want to bring you in here. Talk to me about the impact of these freeze-offs, specifically on natural gas outputs. What do we know? 
So the U.S. is more reliant on natural gas than ever. This is because of the bounty of the shale boom that we saw in the mid-2000s and in the past decade. And so we've had a lot of power plants and households just relying on natural gas. So normally throughout the year, this isn't a big deal. There's enough like pipeline space. You can get gas where it needs to be. But winter has become a problem because not only do you now have a lot more households using a lot more gas when it's super cold, you then have power plants like competing for space on the same pipelines for gas. And households get, you know, priority. You have to heat them. And then so that makes it sometimes difficult for power plants um, to find gas. This it's it's still too early to tell exactly what happened this past weekend, but we've definitely heard about um, you, you know, some power plants and, and PJM, the largest U.S. Grid, grid, which stretches from New Jersey to like um, Illinois, said that there were, um, you know, power plants that had problems getting gas. But we don't know the magnitude of that problem. We do have reports that producers like today on Bloomberg TV, um, EQT CEO Toby Rice said that they had curtailed production because of, you know, wells freezing. And, mm-hmm. and what you said earlier is right on the point you know these are regions that have experienced freezing temperatures before so that's where a lot of the investigation will also be um directed at is like what went wrong this time right you know Right. What went wrong this time and what needs to be done to fix it? I, I got to wonder about the impact this is going to have on consumers who are already dealing with record breaking inflation. Mark, what do we know about how these costs could get passed on to consumers? Well, um, essentially, the cost at, at some point will get passed on to consumers in some form or another. Um, we saw this in Texas after the twenty. 20- 21 winter storm where you had billions of dollars of, of um, energy costs um, basically tack, tacked onto customer bills or, or will be tacked onto customer bills, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, Do we know the extent so of the price increases just yet or is it is it too early to tell? Like, do we have any well, indication of how much the bills are going up? Well, that's a great question, and it's too early to tell the impact to the actual end, end consumer or the uh, the uh, utility customer. Sure. But w- what we do know, and and what Noreen and I reported on um, today, w- was that basically wholesale power prices surged more than six thousand percent in parts of the country during wow. the worst part of this cold snap. So. Um, you know that's a, that's a significant increase. Obviously, all of that you know won't flow through to customer bills, but but some of it will. And this is coming at a time where where uh, consumers are already grappling with inflation and right. and uh, and high energy bills in the right. first place. Right. I mean, I guess the good news for the Fed is that this only makes up about three percent of the CPI. So that's not going to be a huge factor in in inflation data. But of course, it's going to impact consumers. Noreen, I, I want to wrap with you. We've got about a minute left here. What is the single biggest thing that needs to be done to fix this infrastructure as we head into 2023 so that next winter we're not talking about this exact same issue again? I think one of the biggest things that's come out is is that we need to rethink, you know, 
how we think about reliability. That means making sure that the gas industry is in sync with the power industry, the regulation and the, the, the requirements for both industry are a little different. And then try to figure out how are you going to, you know, set the policies in place, which is going to be a big issue next year is like how much more transmission lines are needed? How do you build them? How do you integrate, integrate renewables? And, and how do you keep the fossil fuels that need to be online, online? So there's, there's a lot of debate that's going to happen. And a lot of this policy is going to be shaped next year, the regulators. Right. And on the state level. Right. And a lot that's that's behind these upcoming price hikes that we're going to have to dig into with both of you. Hopefully we can have you on again to dig into that. And of course, we've got this atmospheric river event impacting the West Coast and Pacific Northwest here. So a lot of weather impacts to continue to cover. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be back with more here on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Sound On brought to you by... This is your daily reminder from Innovation Refunds to apply for a payroll tax refund if your small or medium-sized business was impacted by COVID-19. Innovation Refunds clients already claimed over $2 billion in payroll tax refunds. Get started at GetRefunds.com. I'm Madison Mills, in for Joe Matthew. We've got some breaking news here. The layoff news not stopping over the holidays. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon says staff cuts are coming next month. He said that in his year-end message to staff. Solomon said we're conducting a careful review and the reduction will take place in the first half of January. That is a redhead crossing on your terminal now. Goldman Sachs CEO Solomon says staff cuts are coming next month. Joining me to discuss is our panel, Boyd Matheson, host of KSL Radio's Inside Source, Republican strategist and former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. We've also got Max Burns, Democratic strategist and founder of Third Degree Strategies. Thank you both for joining me here on Wall Street. That layoff news I just mentioned, that's going to be top of mind as we head into 2023. But you are our Washington expert, so let's stick with D.C. What do you think is the biggest story that's going to be top of mind for lawmakers as they start to trickle back into Washington next week. Max, let's start with you on that. What's going to be the number one issue on lawmakers' minds? Well, I think you're, you're already hearing a lot of lawmakers talking about looking into these snarling travel problems with Southwest. A lot of constituents have been blowing up lawmakers' phones in their offices, uh, some of them stranded now for three or four or, f- or five days. And this is something that has a lot of immediacy to it, and they're a very unsympathetic Target. So there's a lot you can do in bringing Southwest executives forward in in putting on hearings and in making people see that you're listening to their concerns. Okay, but I got to ask, and, and you guys might not be able to answer this, but, you know, I cover companies in Wall Street typically. 
I have to wonder how much Washington can move the needle here. This is a corporate issue. I mean, Boyd, what is what is your take on that? Is this just a lot of talk from Washington, or can they actually make Southwest do something? Yeah, this was really a, an internal, uh, complete failure of leadership at Southwest. This was not Herb Keller's uh, delivering the customer experience, but long before it became a customer service nightmare. Uh, it was an internal problem. It was a failure of systems and, and supporting the employees, many of whom were trying to do the right thing and to be especially helpful. Uh, so it is very internal. I do think there are a few things uh, that government can do in that space. I don't think there's a ton, um, but there, you know, there's always some regulatory components um, that I think do help. The problem is, is when we have a, a, an experience like this, the natural tendency of Washington is to overreach and to swing too far, which neither mm-hmm. solves the problem. Uh, and usually just creates more burden uh, for for those companies and makes the experience even less effective. So I think a lot of the lawmakers are going to hear a lot of this. Uh, I think a lot of lawmakers are trying to help square the circle in terms of what's going on in the economy and what people are actually feeling and experiencing around the kitchen table. Yep. Uh, because we can tout a lot of good things, and, and politicians are really good at touting the good things, but if it's not congruent, for what the American people are feeling around the kitchen table, that's where politicians on both sides of the aisle end up getting themselves in trouble, either telling a story that sounds great to them, but isn't uh, really resonating with the people back home. Right. you got to wonder whether the, the voters back home are paying attention to the Fed minutes in the same way that Washington and certainly <laughs> us business reporters are, are prone to do. Uh, I wonder, how long do you guys think it's going to be until CEO Bob Jordan of Southwest has to make his way down to Washington in our final 20 seconds here? Max, what do you think about that? Oh, I'm sure if Pete Buttigieg had his way, it would be next week. But uh, I think there there's definitely going to be a, a reckoning here. It may not amount to much, but it will certainly drag him through the coals for as long as they can sit him there. Yep. All right. Well, we will continue to monitor that, of course. Thank you both so much for being here. We had Boyd Matheson and Max Burns joining us on our panel today. And again, just a reminder of that breaking news from Wall Street. Goldman Sachs CEO David Salman says staff cuts are coming next month in his year-end message to staff. A big story we're going to be covering. Continue to stick with us here at Bloomberg to get all of the news you need. I'm Madison Mills in for Joe Matthew today. This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.